Good morning. Uh, as Terry said, I'm Jeff Morgan, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist here in the state of Tennessee, just like Dave, I think, is an LMFT also. Um, I'm also a certified sex addiction therapist and drug and alcohol work. My uh, average client is angry couple. One of the spouse members is acting out, using, drinking, drugging, raging, world's crashing, and then they come in my door. <laughs> and so conflict is a big part of the work I do um, on a regular basis. Terry was saying, you know, tell them a little bit of what, what you do. This is what I do in many ways. Now, of course, there's a lot that goes into marital therapy. There's a lot that goes into addictive work, uh, all kinds of different processes, all kinds of different therapeutic uh, approaches. But for me, at the very core, is this whole concept of how do two human beings be in the presence of each other and work things out. Much of the uh, addictive processes, much of the maladaptive coping mechanisms lie on top of that struggle and inability. So hopefully as we track through this presentation today, you'll get some clarity about being able to work things out with somebody. So uh, I'm married, I have two children. Um, I got married later in life. I was 45 when I had my first child. So I'm 54 now, and that doesn't matter to them that they want to wrestle and jump and tackle. <laughs> I went to my son's last basketball game last night for the season. Just a treat to watch something that, you know, for many years I never thought would even happen in my life and bowling right before me. So, um, so today we're going to talk about this whole process of turning conflict and a relationship actually into a foundation of trust. And so how can you take, when people are disenfranchised, upset, uh, even raging, different things that people do in conflict, to actually turn this into a, something that can become incredibly meaningful and trust building in their lives. So when people come to see me, boom. <laughs> you know, most people don't come into my office on a winning streak. Uh, you know, of the hundreds of clients I've had in the last 10 years, and this is, this is my third career, I think. <laughs> Fourth, if I include my attempt at Rockstar, which didn't go very well. <laughs> but I worked for years in the Christian music industry, uh, but eventually went back to graduate school at Trevecca. And, you know, I was just thinking back through the clients that I've had through the years, hundreds of clients in the last 10 years that I've been practicing Maybe one came in one time and said, hey, uh, I've just been thinking about myself and I need to improve, self-improve. You know, that's just not the way it goes in counseling. They're coming in, there's chaos, uh, there's a lot of emotional content, there's a lot of uh, chaotic activity. So, um, you know, conflict is, is where things start off and leads to a couple of pretty unhappy people. Um, and, and truthfully, one of the good things about just the very beginning of therapeutic in terms of me working with marriages or couples is the conflict actually is often the door in. You know, the chaos is the door in. So, you know, being able to reframe that for them and say, you know, look, guys, you're at your limits here. You're recognizing your need for help. That's a good thing. And so you can pretty quickly speak right into them. And, and realize that what's going on for them right now is, is the beginning step of a process that could be very helpful to them. Um, 
think about this. Relationships almost always begin with lack of conflict. And what people don't often understand is that actually healthy, effective conflict resolution is critical to two human beings feeling trusting with each other. And without that, you don't really get the foundation of trust that you really need. So premarital. I do a few premarital cases every now and then. A couple will come into me. They'll sit on my couch. They're draped all over each other, you know, <laughs> kind of glued together. And I'll say, um, so how long have you known each other? And they'll say, ah, oh, forever, three months. I'll say, okay. And then I'll say, so when's the wedding date? And they'll say, oh, forever, four months. And I'll say, okay, so from the time that you met as human beings to the time that you're going to stand before an altar and make vows and commitment in front of witnesses and to God, it'll be seven months. Is that right? Yep. Tell me about your conflicts. How do you work out things with each other? You know what they almost always say? We don't have any. And I want to look at them and say, of course, I don't really do this, but <laughs> that's the thought that's flashing through my mind. Why are you getting married when you don't trust each other? Mm. And of course, if I brought that up to them directly, they would say, what are you talking about? Of course, we trust each other. We're getting married. They've got the cart before the horse. When people first meet in a relationship and they're becoming attracted, they start to enter this thing called the dopamine high. <laughs> Have you ever heard of young lovers being described as dopey? Well, that's the case. I mean, when's the last time with your spouse or uh, somebody, a good friend even, that you sat on the phone for two or three hours and just chit-chat <laughs> about anything and everything? That's what you do early in relationships. It doesn't matter. The dopamine is singing across the telephone wires, and you're reacting to that. About 18 months or so into the relationship, boom! <laughs> That crashes. Okay, so I'm just trying to underscore the fact here that actual trust is conflict resolution is crucial to actually building trust at the deepest level in a relationship. And taking one step even deeper here, I want to touch, talk a little bit about attachment. Um, you know, basically attachment is about feeling safe with each other. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just read this quote. When couples feel emotionally safe, they are more willing to share vulnerable parts of themselves, more able to accept the feelings of their spouse, more capable of dealing with disagreements through brainstorming and creative processes. That is the core of conflict resolution right there. This whole concept of being vulnerable, accepting the feelings of another human being, not seeing them as threats, brainstorming for creative solutions. We're going to get more into that here in just a minute. Uh, John Bowlby was one of the first to really uh, formulate this concept of human attachment. Human attachment, basically, attachment theory says something along these lines. It says that human beings fundamentally know how the world works in terms of how safe relationships are, how free they're going to be to explore, how supportive people are going to be in their lives, uh, or the opposite how dangerous relationships are, how much they're going to have to keep their head down, how much they're going to have to fight for what they need. That human beings have a fundamental idea of that's called the attachment map by the age of three or four. That's why these earliest 
you know, relationships, these earliest interactions are so crucial in human lives. Now, in terms of attachment, it takes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little interactions between usually the infant and the primary caretaker or parent, etc., to build that attachment map. Even one or two really difficult experiences at that early age aren't necessarily the formative experiences. It almost always takes this ongoing slow trickle of interactions to build that attachment map. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you remember anything before the age of three? It's rare. Usually maybe a fleeting glimpse. <laughs> that wasn't so far ago, was it? <laughs> uh, usually, you know, at the most, we might have a fleeting glimpse or two of things, right? You know, you know our, because when we're born, our left brain, our cognitive processing part, our prefrontal cortex, is basically almost like a blank computer just flashing. I don't know what you're talking about. But our right brain, activated by our limbic system, our emotionally driven, body-driven part of our brain is very active at birth. And so what happens is our earliest languages are actually our emotions in our body. How does a baby communicate? Well, they scream, they yell, but they also, what, arch their body, they twist, they turn. And these, this emotional content I'm going to talk about in a minute comes online very quickly too. So I'm telling you that in terms of attachment, you don't remember these early experiences with your left brain, but you do remember them with your right brain. And this is where this fundamental sense of how safe or unsafe people are, you know, even concepts and things we use like deja vu, or if you've ever felt like I've been here before, <laughs> you know. And when people get into arguments and disagreements, so much of what's happening in the moment is not have much to do with what's happening in the moment. It has a lot to do with what's happened even sometimes before they remember it. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so understanding, and there's just a couple of attachment, uh, three or four attachment styles that researchers have done. The way they started figuring this out with babies is they would take infants and moms and put them in a room, and then they would ask the mom to leave, and then when the mom came back, they would study how did the baby respond to the mom returning. And they found there was just three or four patterns and they call them secure attachment, anxious attachment, disorganized attachment, based on how the baby responded. Um, and so trying to understand that in a coupleship is very important to helping the couple. And there's only a few patterns that couples interact with, with each other that their attachment frames are coming out. So here's an example of, uh, has anybody seen this before? The still face, Terry probably has. We usually see this in counseling. This is an example of what I'm talking about in terms of these earliest interactions affecting a child, okay? This can be a little difficult to watch. So this is an example, and this is a staged thing here, so, but it, it really highlights this concept of the impact on a child of the attachment with the caregiver. Babies this young are extremely responsive to the emotions activity and the social interaction that they get from the world around them. This is something that we started studying 34 years ago when people didn't think that infants could engage in social interaction. And the still face experiment what the mother did was she sits down and she's 
playing with the baby who's about a year of age. And she gives a greeting to the baby, the baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this, and then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. It's a little like the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good is that normal stuff that goes on, that we all do with our kids. The bad is when something bad happens, but the infant can overcome it. After all, when you stop the still face, the mother and the baby start to play again. The ugly is when you don't give the child any chance to get back to the good. There's no reparation, and they're stuck in that really ugly situation. So that's one of the reasons that it's so important to understand some of the history and what's happened in a coupleship in terms of how are they going to feel safe with each other and how are they eventually going to be able to approach each other and work out conflict. Now, if you've raised children or are raising children, you know, this whole concept of secure attachment is the most important um, attachment style that people thrive for and strive for. Attachment has, attachment theory has affected our culture in many ways. Daycare centers are much different than they were today than they used to be 30, 40 years ago. Much different. Uh, adoption process is much different now because of the influence of attachment theory and understanding this. Um, but even in the most secure attachment, I've, I've been doing another presentation uh, research for a presentation I'm giving in May, and I was doing a lot of attachment research, and they said even in the best, most secure attached relationships with infants and parents, parents get it right about 50% of the time. <laughs> so I'm trying to encourage you. <laughs> and, and the thought here is not so much about getting it right in, in terms of secure attachment necessarily as if you blow it, you go back and you take responsibility for blowing it. And you learn and you and the child continue to make progress together in your relationship with each other. That's what really helps. We're gonna blow it. We're gonna mess things up. But how do we come back to another human being and start to repair that? That's the most crucial thing in secure attachment. Okay, so this whole 
underlying my work when people come to see me, you know, it doesn't really matter if their issues are, you know, infidelity, communication, money, in-laws, uh, marrying young, addictive processes. It doesn't really matter because those things are just symptoms. They set on top of the bigger problem, the bigger struggle. You could look at almost all of those, and, and in many ways, like especially with addiction, when I'm talking about addictive things, it uh, doesn't matter if it's drugs or sex addiction or alcohol or scratch-offs, you know, uh, stealing Oxycontin out of your uh, best friend's medicine cabinet, compulsive raging. All of those things fit in a basket called attempts to feel better. That's really what they are. They're all attempts to feel better. And there's nothing wrong with a human being wanting to feel better, but they're just symptoms. You could call them all medicators. And the bigger question is not what kind of medicine are you taking to feel better? The bigger question is what's hurting? What are you medicating? And this gets deeper and deeper into this whole concept of non-sexual intimacy, which is the attachment foundation of how do you fundamentally look at a person, another human being in your life, and you feel like, here's my yes and here's my no. And also, how do you do that with the person in the mirror? Yourself. Both are important. Okay, so uh, effective conflict resolution involves uh, this whole concept of people feeling close to each other. And then it's a skill-driven process. So part of the challenge of uh, conflict resolution is just we don't know the skills. I said before, uh, letting your yes be yes and your no be no with other human beings, but you must actually be able to do this with the person in the mirror too. So there's a whole concept before you can actually work out conflict with another human being, you have to have some ability of working out conflict with yourself. And m many of us are struggle, we're torn, uh, you know, we see inconsistencies in our lives. and. There are things about our individual growth that are actually critically important. Um, one of the goals of healthy parenting is to release a child into adulthood. Okay? So what that means is, you know, here's a child and here's an adult, and child is born, child zero, adult's 20. Over the years, as time goes on, what you're hoping is that this adult is actually helping this child by the time the adult's say 40 and more or less the child's 20, the adult is helping the child up to a place where they're both adults. And then the parent releases the child into adulthood. And at that point, they cease to parent. They just interact as adults. Now they've got a history, I'm not negating that. And they've got a deeper understanding and a deeper level of mentorship. But the 40-year-old but the at some point would stop telling the child, what are you doing? Watch out. Because they wouldn't do that with their peers. Does that make sense? But what happens is over time, in many cases, is that here's the child, here's, I mean, here's the child, here's the parent. All that happens is time goes by. Now the parent's 40, the child's 20, 50, 30, 60, 40, 70, 50, 80, 60, 90, 70, and the 70-year-old dreads going to be with the 90-year because they feel like a little boy. 
they never got released into adulthood. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of the recovery system, especially because I do so much addiction work. I'm a big proponent of developing non-sexual intimacy people because we must have healthy parental voices in our lives or else we will never grow up. We'll just get older. So you've got to have this sense of internal growth. Um, we'll talk a, bit, a second about emotional literacy is critical. Uh, intimacy with the support system, intimacy with God, and intimacy with yourself. You know, we're in the Bible Belt here, and the vast majority of my clients come in, and they are Christians, uh, and certainly purport that. And, you know, I've, I've thought at times, and I, and I don't know if anybody's ever done this, I'm sure somebody has done a survey, and gone out to people and said, you know, what's the number one question human beings have in the world? What's the biggest puzzle for human beings? If they did this, I think that the question probably, even across the globe, would come up with something like this. Is there God? Is there a God? But see, here's what I also believe. We already know the answer to that question. We already know the answer to that question. You cannot stand out in the middle of a beautiful field on a starry night and not pretend you, you yourself are the beginning and the end of the universe. We already know the answer to that question. I think our biggest question is not, is there God? I think our biggest question is, will God really take care of me? And that's where the push comes to shove and our own, own internal growth. And so part of what I do with clients, of course, is you know I'm trying to model acceptance to them. I'm trying to uh, be able to develop appropriate boundaries in my client because this helps draw out the spiritual strengths in my clients. I mentioned again earlier about this concept of emotional literacy. If you're going to work on conflict, you must understand emotional clarity. Emo human emotions, truthfully, uh, are very few. We only have a handful of human emotions. Human emotions are a lot like colors. And this is, I'm talking from an attachment perspective. You can have your view and what you want to say. But I'm talking about from an attachment perspective, we only have a handful of human emotions. Think of them like colors. In colors, you've got red, yellow, blue. What are they called? Primary, Primary colors. Can you take red and break it into anything else? No. It's a primary color. But you can mix red and yellow and you can get, go balls. <laughs> Orange, <laughs> right? Or you can get even more complex colors as you continue to mix the three primary colors and you get fuchsia and taupe and magenta. But at some level, you can take each one of those colors and tear them apart and you're gonna end up with some pieces of red, yellow, and blue. Does that make sense? All colors are like that. Human emotions are similar. We only have a handful. I like Chip Dodd in The Voice of the Heart. He talks about the eight. Anger, fear, hurt, lonely, guilt, shame, sad, and glad. These are the reds, yellows, and blues at the deepest level. These are our primary colors. We often communicate in what's called states of being. In other words, we communicate in mixes of these feelings, blends. Have you ever used the word frustrated, bored, confused, excited? <laughs> Those are blends of emotions. Let's just take excited. Somebody standing at the edge of a cliff 
about to jump off and it's 400 feet down. What do you think they feel? Fear. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but if they've got a parasol strapped on their back and there's a bunch of friends standing around clapping saying, you can do it, they also probably feel glad. And if I walk up to them and say, what are you feeling? They say, I feel excited. You see how I'm excited is often a blend of fear and glad mixed together. Frustrated is another good one. You might have a friend who's a uh, chemist and say you're reading in the paper and you find out your friend won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. And you went, wow. You see him one day and you said, man, I heard you won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. How do you feel? He said, truthfully, frustrated. What? Yeah, well, I feel glad that I won the prize. That's a big honor. But I also should have won this prize four years ago, but there was some political stuff going on behind the scenes. So I feel a little anger and hurt about that. And also, the weekend that I've got to fly to Oslo, Norway, and pick up my award is the same weekend my son graduates from high school. So I feel sad. Okay, do you follow what I'm saying? But if he just said frustrated, you're going to miss a lot of clarity. And that's one of the beautiful values of the core feelings is their clarity of communication. If I said to you guys, hey, I'm thinking of the color red, the color that just flashed in everybody's mind here and the color that's in my mind is pretty close to whatever the Pantone number for pure red is. You guys aren't thinking of fuchsia and I'm not thinking of magenta. We're thinking of red. If somebody comes up to you and says, I feel fear about something, you might not feel fear about the same thing, but you know what fear is. This is why I'm trying to say is that the starting point for me with my clients every single time is this concept of emotional literacy. These core feelings have several important things. Number one is what I just said, clarity of communication. Number two is their, what they communicate about the intrinsic value of human beings. Make sure. What time are we supposed to finish up here, Terry? 15 minutes. Okay. Uh, the intrinsic value of human beings. My personal opinion is that human beings are created in the image of the living God. So what that means is humans have characteristics and abilities that separate us from the plant and animal world. Creative capabilities, relational capabilities. But I can tell you this, our emotional capability is one of the most important. And the fact that we feel anger or hurt or glad or sad is not right or wrong. It's beautiful. It's like a caution light going off. The question is not do we feel the feeling. The question is how do we handle it? What kind of results are we going to get? And so just being able to feel is a gift of our being created in the image of the living God. Okay, so let me plow ahead here. Okay, so now we're going to get into actually healthy conflict resolution. And this is the skill-driven process I was talking about. Number one, you've got to understand the difference in process and content. There's some skills involved. Active listening is probably the most important skill. And then being able to create a formal, safe way to hear each other. Okay, so let's look at process versus content. If you get in an, a disagreement, an argument with somebody, you know what you often forget a week later? Say it's a big one. You know what you often forget a week later? What it was about. I get people come in my office all the time and they say, we had the biggest knockdown drag out we've ever had. I go, really? Oh yeah. They were calling, neighbors were thinking about calling the police. Really? Tell me about it. Well, it all started when, it all started when, hey honey, when did it start? 
I'm trying to tell you, our arguments and our conflicts have got to do more with our attachment frames than they do with what the specific thing is about. We often even forget it. But we do remember the process. There are two parts of every conflict. One is the content. What is it about? The second is the process. How do you go about trying to work through the content? And the content almost always is the least important. And there certainly is some important content. But I'm trying to tell you that, that it's how you work it out that you remember. So one of the little uh, metaphors I'll use is kind of <laughs> like a, a matchbox cars. You guys know what those are, little Hot Wheels cars, little toy cars. They build these elaborate tracks. And I, I point out that if you've got a track, a nice little track that you're putting these cars on, it doesn't matter if you start off with a red car and give it a push at the top of the track, or a blue car and give it a push at the top of the track, or a green car and give it a push at the top of the track. You know where every single one of them goes? Down the track, right? What if the track is broken and cracked? Every single one of them is going to flip off and crash. The cars, the colors of the cars are various content. It might be people throwing clothes in the floor. It might be showing up late. It might be infidelity. But they're all content. The track is the process. That's the yelling and screaming. That's the... Uh, you know, somebody pursuing somebody and hounding them, pressing in, pressing in, as one of my clients said this week. That's the rolling of the eyes. That's the big, that's the silent treatment. All of that is processing. It's just maladaptive processing. It's not going to get you anywhere. Active listening. One of the first structural skills that I teach clients is active listening. Many times in conflict, at some intuitive level, you know this ain't going to work out right now. It's a pretty complex issue. There's a lot of varying things. But I can tell you this, people still want to be heard. And when we start to get together and we start to, uh, you know, work on a conflict, we interrupt, we fold our arms, we roll our eyes, we start planning our defense and our brains. Y'all ever been in a situation like that? <laughs> in a conflict with somebody? You know, we just, we can't even hear them. Sometimes uh, I'll get a couple and I'll have them sit side by side in a chair and one's looking this way and one's looking this way. And I'll say, what I want you to do is tell me what you did from the time you got up this morning to the time you got to my office. Everything you did, one, two, three, go loudly. And so they're going, uh, 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 got up and uh, turned the alarm off and uh, made coffee and brushed my teeth. And the guy's over there saying, yeah, and I took a shower and da-da-da-da. I let it go on for about 30 minutes. I say, stop. What did, what did you hear from the other person? Nothing. <laughs> we talk over each other. Y'all understand what I'm talking about hearing this? So active listening is actually a skill where you teach somebody, and it's, it's a powerful skill, and this is a difficult one. It's part of learning how to detach, which is our most difficult non-sexual intimacy skill. Active listening is about playing catch, like warm-up baseball with somebody where you're going back and forth. They're going to say something to you, and you know these rules, and they know the rules, but they're going to say, I need to let you know something. I feel pretty hurt. And you're going to say, what I'm hearing you say is, you feel pretty hurt. Is that correct? You're going to be able to engage in them and do your best to repeat back what they said word for word. 
And when you put this in the context of the next structure, the, 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 the diplomatic structure of healthy conflict resolution, it makes your conflicts solvable. So this is, this is the mechanism I use for, for, for people when they actually want to start to resolve conflict healthily. I tell them, you're about to learn some diplomacy. You're about to learn a diplomatic structure. There are, different, there are different marital forms that do this. EFT, emotional focus therapy, has a beautiful focus on the emotional content like we just talked about, and they have like a nine-stage structured form. Uh, different, different people have what you're doing is creating a safe dialogue container. So you're going to get the people face-to-face, -face, and it's always, when you teach somebody how to work through a conflict, they must understand that this conflict they're about to go into, this conflict resolution process, is nothing but an invitation. It's always invitational. So you walk up to a person, they, and I'm, I'm pretending that they, I've worked with them and they know what they're doing here. And somebody walks up and they say, I need to let you know something. I'm having some feelings. Are you willing to dialogue? That's a code phrase in their relationship that they have learned that means, oh, you don't want to just chat. You don't want to just... Uh, you know, discuss something, you want to dialogue. And you're going to enter into this formal diplomatic process when you do this. The, the answer to that question, if you're in a relationship with somebody you care about and they walk up to you and they say, I'm having some feelings, are you willing to dialogue? The answer is always yes. Otherwise you're saying, you know, come closer. But I truly don't care about what's important to you. No, no, no. The answer is always yes, but it might not be right that second. There's a variety of ways to engage this process. So the first thing starts off with, a, with an invitation. Are you willing to dialogue? And then you go into this formal structured thing where they do active listening. I feel hurt. Honey, what I'm hearing you say is you felt hurt. Is that correct? Yes. I felt hurt when you were 30 minutes late to our lunch. When I'm hearing you say you feel hurt when I was 30 minutes late to the lunch. Is that correct? Now, the person, by the way, who's doing the active listening, when I went back a while ago and I had the little robots up there, sometimes you must <laughs> learn how to detach. And I don't care if you go, what I'm hearing you say is that there were 30 minutes late. Is that correct? You know, you cannot sit over there and your response is go, what I'm hearing you say is it 30 minutes late. You know, you just destroyed the safety of the dialogue container. Active listening involves just being present. And the person who's in the detaching place has no responsibility in this other than repeating it back. They don't have to agree, they don't have to disagree, nothing. What I make up is, we always make something up. We always have some kind of tape running in our head. Uh, what I make up is, uh, you know, you don't care about being punctual. What I make up is you're often late. What I make up is that uh, you forgot my anniversary again. You just don't care about me. Do you see what I'm getting into some deeper places here? But the point being is that making it up, when you say something like that or what the tape running in my mind, it's almost a soft way of saying this is the way I'm interpreting this, but I might be wrong. But I want you to see inside my head. What this reminds me of is a deeper place. Uh, that often comes in actual therapy when somebody starts to understand their attachment wounds. And so she might say, what this reminds me of is that, 
is that dad was always gone on weekends and he missed every single one of my dance recitals. What I'm hearing you say is this reminds me of the fact that your dad was always gone on weekends and he missed every single one of your dance recitals. Is that correct? Yes. You see what I'm saying? What it reminds me of is never about the current relationship. It's only if you have some idea of what's really pulling you at a deeper level. What I need. The what I need is about yourself. It's not about you. If you're in a dialogue with somebody, a formal dialogue, when you say what I need, it's what I need, not what I need you to do. So this is a very global thing. I need world peace. <laughs> but things like safety and connection and trustworthiness and attention and affection, those are global concepts, but you, you need to be able to articulate that to your spouse. Now, if I'm working with a couple and we're working through a dialogue and they get to this point and they say, what I need is uh, respect and uh, affection, or say respect and dignity. And the other one says, what I'm hearing you say is you need respect and dignity. Is that correct? Yes. I'll go, I can go like this and say, stop. I look at the other spouse and say, are you opposed to respect and dignity? You know what they say? No. <laughs> like for yourself, are you opposed to respect and dignity? No. Like if she had all the respect and dignity she could ever have and she had a bucket or two left over, would you be okay if she gave it to you? Yes. What I'm trying to tell you at the deepest level when people conflict, they're on the same page about the deepest things that are important to them. You gotta be able to go. Now at the very end, you go back to the behaviors. He was late. So what I'm asking you to do is be on time, send me a message, whatever the resolution is. Go to a therapist and talk about your propensity to be late to everything. <laughs> you know, deal with procrastination. And then it always ends with, and he goes, so what I'm hearing you say is you asked me to be on time, go to a therapist and talk about procrastination. Is that correct? Yes. Are you willing? The entire dialogue is one giant invitation. There's no threat at all. It's no threat to you when somebody says, I feel hurt. I feel angry. Listen to the differences in these two. I feel hurt. Oh, I feel angry. You make me angry. Do you hear the differences in that? One's a bid for intimacy, one's an attack. Let me speed through this. Uh, when I have time, I'm going to jump over the continuum, but that's a beautiful way to understand how empathy and attach those two skills in the middle actually work. Um, by the way, I put my uh, email address on that sheet. If you guys want more information about this, you're welcome to email me. But in healthy relationships, there's this movement back and forth in empathy and detachment. Those are the skills. As you can see on the extremes, we'll get into the, where a lot of relationships struggle. Withdrawing, isolation, which leads to addiction, secrets, compartmentalization. Codependence is too much empathy, fear-driven empathy, and the enmeshment is where the whole system collapses into one big sticky glue. Support systems, I talked about that, often a huge deficit in marriage. Men need men, women need women. You cannot look at your spouse as your primary place of support. I'm not talking about gossiping or complaining, but you need to have other people in your life that you can look at the phone and call and say, I feel angry. She's, you know, whatever. He's whatever. You've got to have an ability to have somebody where you can be known. And then, you know, recovery programs, church groups, sponsors, and mentors, they're all drawing out those healthy parental voices. Uh, 
couples visions after you work on healthy conflict you can really start to thrive in a relationship developmental transitional extended family reactions vision and legacy in your life i'll say one last thing extended family interactions if you learn how to work with your spouse and develop a sense of peace and trust with your spouse then guess what you're going to start to draw a boundary around your relationship and for many of us that means being able to look at our family members uh, Alan Godwin, who will be here next week, has a beautiful way of talking about reasonable people and unreasonable people. And the point is, once you if you determine somebody is truly unreasonable at the core, stop reasoning with them. Because you ain't going nowhere. No reason's good enough. You can come up with a phrase like, you may be right. <laughs> <laughs> and you move on and change topics. These are all some of the blessings that come out of later uh, relational interactions after you built a foundation of trust through conflict resolution. The end. Okay, thanks, Jeff. Uh, you know, we've, I've said it before, I'll say it again. We just scratched the surface in this 40 minutes or so. Uh, so, the mission of this class, the idea behind this class, is to do three things. One is to equip through information, but also through putting in contact with resources. Uh, the other is to remove stigma about certain things that historically have been stigmatizing. And the third is to start conversation. dialogue that made me think, I need to put this out there again and let everybody know. But those three things start conver helpful conversations with other people that you know, might be family members, neighbors, people you know from church, whatever. So that's the purpose here. Um, I was going to tell you who's coming next week, but you beat me to it which is fine. So Dr. Alan Godwin will be here. Uh, he's something of a specialist in working with what he calls unreasonable people. Unreasonable people. Un unreasonable. Unreasonable. Split it up that way. Unreasonable people. Yes, access to <laughs> some of the therapist types. And, you know, that's sort of a step in the direction of personality disorders in some cases. So really important stuff. And so he has the best title, I think. Wolves in sheep's clothing, manipulators and boundary violators. Hey, thanks a lot for being here. Um, I think Jeff can hang around for a minute. I'll hang around for a minute if you have anything. And hope you can make it in next week. We're done. Mm -hmm.